0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
1: Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, great pleasure to be with you. Plenty to talk about today. By the way, join us during the week on Fox Business Television. Name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, Monday through Friday. And if by some Crazy chance you can't get us at four, you should uh, text your favorite nine year old. Just text your favorite nine year old who will show you how to DVR the show and you'll never miss a thing. And here on radio, you can live stream us over the internet all across the country. Just it's LarryCudlowShow.com. Is that right, kids? LarryCudlowShow.com runs all across the country. Throughout the world, throughout the solar system, we have terrific ratings throughout the solar system. So, lots to talk about today, but the lead story is still the energy story. As I might add, all uh, prices creep up back towards a hundred dollars a barrel. They had gotten to below eighty, and gasoline prices nationwide are now moving back to four dollars a gallon. They had to be down to three seventy-five or some such. And some of this, a lot of this, was because the Saudis and their pals in OPEC, and now it's called OPEC Plus, right? So it includes Russia, decided to take a stick and poke it in Joe Biden's eye. And instead of helping out with more production, they cut back 2 million barrels a day of oil production. Cut back 2 million. The Biden people were feverishly lobbying them to no avail. What's going to affect? What's the price impact of two million barrels a day less on the open market? It's kind of hard to say. Uh, prices have been creeping up about ten bucks in anticipation of this. As I say, I think you're going to get your oil. Uh, Brent will go through a hundred dollars. That's European crude. U.S. West Texas will go. Pretty, we'll be challenging $100 within a week or two. Gas prices, which already on the West Coast or California gasoline prices are close to $7. But around the country, they have fallen back uh, from $5 to as low as, I think, three seventy-five. the national average. That's creeping up now to $3.90. It'll be at forty-four dollars uh, And, of course, these blue states, with their high taxes and so forth, will be well through $4 right on the eve of the election, right on the eve of the election. So it's interesting to me, and this a few important points here. The Saudis and OPEC paid no attention to Biden. He had been over there, what, this past summer, late spring, early summer, begging them to keep the oil spigots open. Nothing ever happened. And you sort of ask yourself why. Well, Saudi Arabia has always been an ambiguous ally. Probably the worst part of it is Russia, Putin, benefits from higher oil prices. We are, I'm sorry, not we, OPEC Plus, with their decision to withdraw 2 million barrels a day and raise prices, let's call it in round numbers, and by 20 bucks, 25 bucks, you know, that goes right into Vladimir Putin's coffers and helps him finance his war against Ukraine. So it's a bad story. Uh wait a minute though, the Bidens continue to press for some kind of nuclear deal with Iran. Iran, who Hates America, hates Israel, hates the Saudis, the principal sponsor of state terrorism throughout the Middle East and elsewhere around the world. Iran, who does a lot of business with Russia. Iran, who does a lot of business with China. Biden's people keep trying to press for an Iran nuclear deal, which is insane. They lie, cheat, steal, kill the uh, international... U.N. inspectors can't get in there. There'll be no verification of any deal. That's the Iranian story. Why are we doing this? By the way, a deal with Iran would give them a couple hundred billion dollars. A deal with Iran would open up their oil spigots because we've had very tough economic sanctions on Iran put in place by President Donald Trump. Those sanctions would be lifted. This is Biden's search for oil. And then, hang on a second, there's more. Now we read in the papers and we hear from insiders that, once again, Biden's team is negotiating with that great, democracy-loving friend of the United States, Venezuela. Venezuela? Wait a minute. Venezuela is a communist country. Nicolas Maduro hates the United States. Venezuela is run by the Cuban Secret Service. Everybody knows that. When I worked in the White House, we paid a lot of attention to Venezuela, and we tried to cook up some plans that would overthrow Maduro. I mean, the the only elected national representative from the National Assembly is Guaidar, I mean, he's really the president of Venezuela, but Maduro holds the, uh, holds the instruments of power, the institutions of power, particularly, you know, the secret, secret police, the interior, the finance ministry, and the communications and so forth. Now the U.S. is once again flirting with Venezuela for oil. Oil. By the way, Venezuela has the dirtiest oil probably in the world. The United States has by far the cleanest oil. And, you know, because communism doesn't work, their oil facilities have gone into great disrepair. Chevron uh, still open up and there, but they're not producing anything or hardly anything, I don't know, 100,000 barrels a day, some such thing. Venezuela used to do, I don't know, 300,000, 400,000. They used to do a couple of million at the height of it, as did Iran. So, the point is, we are playing footsie, we, the U.S., the Biden administration, with dictatorships who hate America in Iran and Venezuela to get oil. So, let me get this right it's okay for the rest of the world to print oil, including Iran, including Venezuela, including Russia, etc. But it's not okay for the United States to produce oil. Because soon after the Saudi OPEC announcement that they were cutting back a couple of million barrels a day of oil, the National Security Council and the National Economic Council in the Biden White House does what? Says what? Well, they put out a statement saying this shows that we must rely less on fossil fuels. Really? Can I step back a minute and think about the so It's okay for Iran to produce. It's okay for Venezuela to produce. It's okay for China to build a couple hundred coal plants, which they're doing. But it's not okay for the United States, which has the most efficient oil and gas And refiners in the world, the cleanest, job creators, high wages. It's not okay for the U.S. to produce, but it's okay for them to produce. Really? Think about that, folks. Think about that policy. You might think about that and say, that's a stupid policy. And you would be right. It is an incredibly stupid policy. It's actually beyond stupid. They can, but we can't. Really? By the way, natural gas, clean burning fuel, that's why the United States has the lowest carbon emissions of any of the big countries. Because natural gas. And that's why our base of power should be nuclear and natural gas. But you can't just knock out... Fossil fuels, which is what the Bidens have tried to do from day one. He started it in the campaign back in 2000. I'm going to end fossil fuel industry. And they've done everything they can to do just that. So what's happened? Well, they have helped to jack up prices. Not only oil prices, natural gas prices, electricity prices, home heating fuel prices, By the way, in California, if you have an electric vehicle, you can't recharge your battery. Why? Because there's an electricity shortage in California, the land of fruits and nuts. Why is there no electricity? Well, I'll tell you because they won't have any, they have no oil and natural gas production left, essentially. What a great idea that is. I mean, you know, we're going to give $400 billion worth of uh, Green New Deal tax credits to buy these. Electric vehicles, what is it, $7,500 a family? And if it's a union shop, you get, I don't know, up to $12,000. Well, you can't recharge it because they don't have any electricity because Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom, who, by the way, personally, I'm I'm, I'm never personal, but Governor Gavin Newsom out there has basically closed down fossil fuels. That's Biden. That's the Biden utopia. Take a look at California. Anyway, I don't want to digress too far right this second, All I want to say is a country that says all other countries around the world can produce fossils, but we can't, a Biden administration that says it's okay for Venezuela, it's okay for Iran, it's okay for China, but it's not okay to produce here, you know, where you got about, what, seven, eight, nine, 10 million jobs at stake, high paying jobs. You'd have lower gasoline prices. You'd have lower electricity prices. Wait till you see your utility bills already popping up. Wait till you see it this winter. Natural gas, home heating fuel, electricity. It's not okay for us to produce. They can, we can't. We have to rely less on fossil fuels here in the U.S. Well, what exactly are we going to use? Wood? I mean, this is Stone Age thinking. And that was their response to the Saudi OPEC cutback of production. That was their response, just like that. So you probably shouldn't be surprised because Americans, a smart lot of people with a lot of common sense, see right through the stupid policies. Like they get it, and nobody can figure it out. Global warming? We've spent trillions and trillions, literally trillions, up to $5 trillion in so-called climate change, Green New Deal money in recent years. Under Republicans and Democrats, by the way, George W. Bush started this, not Donald Trump, I might add. But Obama did it. Now Biden is doing it. We spent all this money. And the needle on climate change hasn't moved but like, what is it, seven or eight ten thousandths of one degree Fahrenheit. That's all it is. That's all the needle's done. But we've created enormous hardship. By the way, not just here in the U.S. with high prices. But around the world, less developed countries, they need fossil fuels. They're not worried about carbon emissions. They're worried about day-to-day living. Power drives economies. You take the power away, you take the economic growth opportunities away. Guess what? The biggest source of power is in the U.S., and around the world, fossil fuels. Hold on, 80%, hold on, I want to, have 80% of our power in the US and power around the globe, 80% comes from, you guessed it, fossil fuels. And that ain't going to change. And you know why it ain't going to change? Because there is, as yet, no alternative power structure. The renewable stuff is a utopian. It's a green utopian. I'm not against it, by the way. You know, I'm okay with it. You want to produce wind farms and solar farms? I'm okay with it. The trouble is it's too expensive. And the other trouble is you create these wind farms, for example. Guess what you need to dig the minerals out of and and to reconstruct the – Uh, plants and the assemblies of these gigantic wind turbines, guess what you need? You need carbon-related power to produce renewables. And the Bidens have never given us an alternative structure. You know why? They don't have one. You know what that's called? Stupid. Stupid. You know what the best news is? The cavalry is coming to stop this nonsense i'm Cudlow. we'll be right back please stick around now back to the larry kudlow show welcome back folks i'm larry kudlow i want to continue this discussion of the stupid policies by the way we will have republican uh, senate leadership john hoven on at the half hour uh, he's from north dakota which of course home of the back and shale And uh, it's a big uh, energy state, natural resource energy state. And he's a very, very, very smart fellow. But I want to continue this. So yesterday, I guess starting Thursday night at a Democratic fundraiser, besides talking about uh, Armageddon uh, with Vladimir Putin, and we're going to have General Jack Keenan to talk about Armageddon or the lack of Armageddon. Biden was crowing Thursday night at this Democratic fundraiser and also yesterday after the jobs report came out about how he has created economic security, economic security, Uh, four weeks before the election, where, by the way, all the polls of likely voters are now shifting toward uh, Republicans. I mean, the cavalry really is coming in the House and the Senate. And, by the way, we will have uh, Lee Zeldin, Congressman Lee Zeldin running for governor of New York, who has pulled even now. In this massive blue state, he has pulled even with uh, uh, Kathy uh, Hochul, who was the uh, Democrat who replaced Andrew Cuomo. But but you got Biden talking about economic security, uh, and he cited you know yesterday's jobs report. It was it was fine. Two hundred sixty three thousand non farm payrolls, about the same for the so called household payrolls. The unemployment rate is three and a half percent. So job creation is slowing, but but it's fine. The trouble here is, and it's related to energy, but it's also related to massive federal overspending and massive Federal Reserve money printing, as well as the war against fossil fuels, as well as the big government socialist regulatory war against business. The inflation rate is running 8% plus, while the increase in wages is running slightly less than 6%. So from yesterday's jobs report, like I say, it was an okay report showing some slowdowns, but wages of production workers, blue-collar workers, working folks I call them, middle class, wages increased 5.8% over the past year, which, by the way, is a good number. Right? I'm all. I want more people working, and I want them earning wages. You know, higher wages. They they earn what they deserve. If they're working hard, and more people working does not cause inflation. But the trouble with the 5.8 percent increase in wages is that the inflation rate is above eight percent and is likely to stay there on the CPI for the next couple of months. So real wages, that is wages adjusted for inflation, continue to fall. This is the 18th consecutive monthly drop in real pay, in real pay. That is the soft underbelly of the Biden economy. That is the soft underbelly. We will talk more about this, but that is the problem. There is no economic security. All right. Stick around. Senator John Hovind going to talk to me about oil and energy and exports and all the crazy, dumb, stupid things. I hate to use those adjectives, but the Bidens are just off the charts and Americans see right through them. And the cavalry is coming. And I'm Larry Kudlow. And we'll be back after this quick break.
0: From Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right,
1: Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. We bring in. A great friend and a very important Republican senator from uh, the West, from the resource state of North Dakota, home of the back and share, Senator John Hoven. Senator Hoven, thank you for your time. We appreciate it, sir.
2: Larry, always good to be with you. Hope you're doing well. I am.
1: By the way, uh, you are fabulous. On the TV show, I don't want you to get a swelled head, but you had very high Uh, ratings in your segment.
2: (laughs) Oh, well, I appreciate that, Larry, and it's always good to join you. You know, I mean, uh, we've uh, worked together for years, so it's always good to join you, and I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, no, we had a very uh, good conversation. So there's a whole bunch of things here regarding this OPEC Plus decision and, in general, uh, Biden administration, energy policies. But, Senator Hovind, the first thing I want to raise is, How in the world – and I think Americans are a lot smarter than the Bidens think they are. How in the world can you operate a policy that says it's okay uh, to drill and produce oil in these dictatorships like Iran or Venezuela or China, which is producing coal, as you well know. But it's not okay to produce fossils in the United States. It's not okay. Instead, we have to rob and destroy the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, how do you get away with that? It that's a that's a I'm asking you an oil economics question, but I'm also asking you a political question.
2: Well, it is geopolitical, isn't it? And you left out Russia. There's another hypocrisy yes. where they produce oil. I mean, so, of course, your point I mean, you, your question makes your point. It's ridiculous. And not only is it ridiculous on its face, Larry, but who has the best environmental stewardship? Mm. Hands down, the United States, mm. And so, you know, the whole point is not only are we talking about a situation where instead of producing here at home, which is what we absolutely need to do, where it is we get on the most dependable basis with the best environmental stewardship, where, you know, it addresses national security issues as well because we're energy secure here at home. Instead, we've got an administration that has a policy. Where uh, they're, as I said, you know, when we talked uh, this week, they're putting the handcuffs on our producers. And then they're going to places like, good heavens, uh, like Venezuela or Iran or OPEC plus, uh, you know, to to get uh, oil and gas. It, it's it's absolutely the wrong thing to do.
1: How can they, you know, just to
2: pause a moment on the Venezuela
1: story, uh, Nicolas Maduro is basically center He's basically a socialist, communist. He's backed uh, the Secret Service. We did a lot of work. Uh, John Bolton and I and others, uh, Mike Pence, for example, we we looked at uh, six ways till Thursday to try to figure out how to overthrow him. Uh, You know, we backed the head of the National Assembly, Juan Juan Guidar, I think his name is. But how can they seriously think they can do business with a guy like uh, Maduro in Venezuela, who is financed by Russia, China and Cuba and where the Cuban Secret Service basically runs the place. I mean, really, to get what, a couple of barrels of very dirty oil? I mean, how can they even think about that, the Bidens?
2: Well, first of all, it's wrong on its face. I mean, from the standpoint that you're dealing with somebody who's a dictator who abuses human rights. Look, look what he's done in his country to abuse his people and how they're suffering because of his dictatorship. Uh, total abuser of human rights. So on its face it's just wrong. But then you make the second very uh correct point, and that is it won't work. It yes. won't work. Take take my state of North Dakota. We were producing one point five million barrels a day of oil at the end of the Trump administration. We're down to about a million. That's half a million barrels right there, mm. just my state. Now think if we weren't prevented from producing on federal lands, if we weren't held up in court with a permitting, if we could actually build the pipelines and and so forth that we need to get that oil to market we would be producing two million Mm. instead he takes us from 1.5 down to one just my state alone that's another million barrels okay he was he's been taking a million barrels a day out of the strategic petroleum reserve Mm. well we could have produced that right here at north dakota and not depleted the reserve We're one state. Obviously, you go around, apply that to Texas and other oil-producing states. You can see that instead of being at less than 12 million barrels a day nationally, we should be north of 14 million barrels a day. Mm. There's 2 million barrels a day. He wouldn't have to go to these other places. That's why the simple solution staring us in the face is to produce more oil here at home. Yeah, you know, we... And and natural gas, and natural gas, as well as coal-fired electricity, all those things. We are a huge energy powerhouse. Let's uh, unleash our potential.
1: The thought I had in general terms is that we had the power. We held the whip hand. We held energy power. We were independent and dominant. What's happened in the, just two years, indeed less than two years, Senator Hovind, we have given that power to Saudi Arabia and OPEC, who had it for all those decades going all the way back to the Arab oil embargo we took the power away during the trump years and now biden has given them the power back that's a seems to me sir that's a very bad i, I know the economics are bad as you just described You you have to cut back on your production in in the dakota but i mean in geopolitical terms that's very bad we have given bad people more power and we've lost our energy power
2: right I mean, and again, it's not just about energy. Remember, we're staring at, at inflation that, that, it, that hits our low-income people the hardest. They're seeing a situation where, you know, inflation is, is uh, more than chewing up any wage gains they're making. Um, you know, so, I mean, you're seeing inflation at run north of 8 percent, wage gains at running maybe 5 percent. That actually dissipates their actual wages. And remember, that energy cost, that's a component of inflation in every product and service. So first, as you said, the economic thing. But but you're making a very important point. The national security thing, the geopolitical dynamics. Look, if we were producing 14 million barrels of oil a day or more, which we could easily be doing, again, with the best environmental stewardship, we would be telling OPEC plus, and other places what to do and how, you know, this is going to work. And we wouldn't even, I mean, with Maduro and Iran and places like that, we'd put crushing sanctions on them. I mean, you deal from a position of strength, not weakness. And energy dominance, as you said, was part of us dealing from a position of strength in world events.
1: You know, like it or not, like it or not, Biden's uh, worldwide powered 80% by fossil fuels, Senator Hovind. And despite the trillions of dollars, this is the work done uh, by my friend Bjorn Lomborg, but also others have done this. Uh, Steve Koonin, distinguished physicist who actually worked for Obama years ago. I'm just saying worldwide, we've spent about $5 trillion, and the needle hasn't moved. So 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. That has not changed, and I'm not against renewables. I don't think you're against renewables, but you don't end fossils in order to support renewables, and this is why I talk about this power shift, sir. The power shift troubles me enormously. We took OPEC's power away. Now we've just given it back, and they are not our best buddies.
2: Well, there's a, there's like three things that I want to bring up there because, I mean, I think you really... You know got on to something that's very important first as far as the we have to look at things globally so the 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 whole aspect of more energy more cost effectively more dependably and addressing the the, all the security issues is our ability to drive the technology Uh, you know you're an economist Mm -hmm. you know that nobody has greater innovation and entrepreneur activity and all those things that drive technologies Better than the United States. So as we drive the technology forward in in energy production and development, we do we enhance the environmental stewardship, and then the rest of the world adopts it. So like you say, you know, 80% of the world still using fossil fuels. We're the place where the technologies are developed, where we produce it more effectively, efficiently. And efficiently with better environmental stewardship and then other countries adopt it that's the real solution to more energy mm. and with the best uh, environmental stewardship is you advance the technologies we do that here so empower the investment don't hold it up with this ESG stuff and all these other things let those unleash those market forces Larry that's how mm. like you say as far as producing all energies sure types of energy, but it should be through market forces and innovation and entrepreneurial activity and new technology. That's not only what benefits our country. And I know you know this because, I mean, that's your training. This is in your wheelhouse. But then the other countries will adopt it around the globe. And so that's the best approach from an economic standpoint. Unleash those market forces. And then, like you say, you empower free societies like ours. Mm -hmm. And you put the, you know, you put the hammer down on those autocracies and those abusers of human rights. Yeah,
1: that's really the key thing. I mean, I remember, uh, Senator, when I was a young pup starting out, uh, I was working at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the uh, early mid-70s when uh, I guess it was seventy three, nineteen seventy three, 1973, the uh, Arab oil embargo, which destroyed our economy. And then we had multiple threats of that. I went to Wall Street in the 70s and 80s. But you remember there was a time when we, we all held our breath every time OPEC met. Why? Right. Because we knew they weren't going to help us. We knew they were going to hurt us if they possibly could. Uh, those days ended, and now they've come back. I mean, the attention paid to this recent meeting was mind-boggling.
2: Yeah, for you and me, it's we're old enough to remember 74 and the Arab oil embargo and all that. And, and you know, come on. I mean, those are the kind of things you got to learn from and make darn sure we'd never repeat. And then they were talking about peak oil like we wouldn't be able to go get it. And then we develop hydraulic fracturing and directional drilling and all these kind of things. And, you know, we, we could produce oil forever and then some. And, again, we do it with such better technology and such better environmental stewardship and all these things. You know, good grief. We learned that lesson. We shouldn't have to be repeating this, Larry, and we wouldn't have to be repeating it if we just had the right energy policy. That's the thing. And it's not complicated. It's staring us right in the face. We just got to do it. And that's why, you know, we're going to continue to fight, myself and others, to, to get back to that kind of energy policy that will not only make us, as you rightly said, energy sufficient, but energy dominant.
1: Just one last one before we take a quick break. And I hope you can stay with us on the other side, because there's new oil policy threats on on exports, for example, uh, that could be very damaging and and no uh, leasing in the the offshore Gulf. But just last one, Um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was set up in response to the Arab oil embargo of the 70s. Okay, it's probably not my favorite thing in the world, but we have it for emergencies, hurricanes, natural disasters. And, you know, what if the uh, Middle Eastern states now and or Russia uh, pull a fast one. They did in a small way this past week. But Biden's destroyed this, Spro. He's taken roughly almost half of the oil reserves out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that is going to cripple that operation. And by the way, if they want to buy it back and refill it uh, to whatever, 700 million barrels, I think it's down uh, now. I don't know. It's 400 million plus they're going to have to do it at a hundred dollar price of oil. I mean, I think that was one of the motivations of OPEC. Instead of fifty or sixty, they're going to keep it at a hundred, or who knows. So Biden's destroyed Spro, which was the main baseline function for energy security as well as national security.
2: No, that's right on. I I think that the Saudis. I mean, obviously Russia's got a variety of interests here. We know that. I mean, they're. In the in the war with the Ukraine, so there's a whole lot more going on. That's a whole conversation. But for the Saudis, they're looking at, at a global slowdown. So they're they're saying, okay, if we get recession, the price of oil is going to continue to go down. Yeah. Then the Biden administration is going to quit taking uh, oil out and buy it back cheaper. Right. So they, the Saudis don't want a lower price of oil. So what do they do? They say, okay. We're going to step right in front of the Biden administration, and we're going to drop it 2 million barrels. And now they've effectively stymied him on both counts. They keep the price higher, so then he can't buy it back cheaper. They're getting more money, and our consumers pay for it at the pump and in inflation.
1: You know, Senator, uh, we like to talk in highfalutin policy terms, but I think some Americans, some middle-class working folks would just call this policy stupid.
2: Yeah, I, think just, that's I hate exactly to say right. It, it sounds I, personal, no, no, Larry. <laughs> no, I got, I got it. I got to tell you, it wouldn't be some; it'd be a lot of them because it
1: is. <laughs> we are talking to a very distinguished and smart John Hoban, Senator John Hoban of North Dakota, which is the home of the Bakken Shale, one of the key oil producing states in the country. Uh, Senator, please give me uh, just a minute or two. I got to make a commercial break. I want to come back and talk about some more goofy policies on the drawing board. Uh, folks, we're with Senator John Hovind. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. The subject is energy. No, the subject is stupid policies. <laughs> we'll be right back.
0: From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Senator John Hovind of North Dakota. Uh, Senator, two, two additional points, and we thank you for your time on it Saturday very much, Um, Number one, there's an editorial today, uh, I guess it was today in The Wall Street Journal, the White House is considering a self-defeating ban on refinery exports. In other words, no more exports. And I think that would include LNG. Uh, But uh, uh, talking about stupid, how dumb is that?
2: Well, the thing they don't take, it it, it wouldn't work in terms of their policy goals because Remember, we produce, we refine, we use, we move oil around. It's a global market. And they're starting, again, to create impediments to our industry providing more supply. You can't just produce the oil or natural gas. you got to get it to market. you got to refine it and all these different things. And so every time the Biden administration tries to get involved, they create bottlenecks and problems which reduce our supply to the consumer. So So that's what we've been saying from the start. Get the handcuffs off. Let our... Our, our industry do what it does best, which is produce more supply for our people, and they'll do it. Don't keep coming up with these regulations and all these bottlenecks and, and time up in red tape, which is what the administration keeps doing. Um, the, the White House says
1: uh, these exports take away from domestic supplies, but other experts in the industry, uh, U.S. oil and gas uh, and the American Petroleum Institute, Mike Summer say that uh, more American exports would actually increase production everywhere. And by the way, it would also create a lot of jobs. And by the way, it would also help our allies in Europe.
2: Well, that said, again, they keep trying to regulate and have this command and control economy. Larry, tell me, when have we ever seen a command and control economy work? When has it ever produced more supply? That's the whole point. They're, they're the problem. They need to get out of the way. And, and again, the other thing that would really make a difference is – if they would uh, let us produce on federal lands, let us uh, stop. They're holding up all the permits and all that activity. But, yeah, I mean, they're the problem. We've got to let our industry work. And when they come in and start trying to direct how it should work, obviously, that produces less supply, not more. And we need more domestic supply.
1: So the, the other policy uh, percolating, uh, I think we're very cl- – uh, we the Bidens are close to this, is um – uh, putting an end, blocking all, uh, I guess, permitting leasing, drilling in
2: uh, federal offshore oil. So they're just going gonna... right. to see they they still okay. They they put a moratorium on all leasing on federal uh, lands, onshore and offshore. Mm-hmm. Now they've only opened up twenty percent onshore, and they raised the royalties, and they raised the taxes, and their whole they say there's that, that there are leases out there they've awarded that's true and they're holding them up by either a not permitting them or b the environmental groups are holding them up in court so they can't be produced and offshore they haven't done anything because they're studying and they're putting out proposals on how to do it they can you know delays defeat they can do that forever the point is they come out with these policies on how they're going to you know get in and talk about exports and that kind of stuff all they really need to do is come out and say okay we we now are going to put a. an A push on producing Hmm. oil and gas here at home, and then give the industry what it needs to do it, and it would immediately, it would immediately bring the price down, even before that supply comes to the market. Which it would—that's the most expeditious way to do it, Larry. Even before that, you know, it would bring the price down because people, you know, that's the futures market. People anticipate now they're going to let our people produce, and that'll bring it down immediately. You know, know that—that's
1: a great point, Market X. Energy market expectations will shift quickly. Uh and, sure. and bring
2: a lot of that price is anticipated those, future right, direction of supply. You that's know right.
1: that. That's exactly no, that's a hundred percent right. The futures market, and then it gets discounted into the uh, you're you're just exactly right. So I mean, here we go. So OPEC uh you know puts a stick in, in Biden's eye and, and cuts back production, and the two things that come out is a a ban on refinery exports and a ban on offshore drilling. I mean, that's like the white flag of surrender, Senator Hovind. I mean, it's just the white flag. Instead of fighting, as you say, you know, the Energy Information Agency said a couple years ago we would be at 14 million barrels per day in 2022 this year on our way to 15 million barrels a day in 2024. Instead, as you pointed out, in North Dakota and elsewhere, we're cutting back. We're still under 12 million. Uh, I mean, this is the white flag of surrender. That's the way I see it.
2: Larry, I got to invoke the name of a guy that you work for and I know have immense respect for, me too, President Ronald Reagan. You know, if you want want less of something, you tax it and you (laughs) regulate it, and that's exactly what they're doing. And if you want more, you encourage that investment by the industry and, and allow market forces to work. And and that's exactly what we're seeing happen is, is he's holding it up with taxation, regulation, restriction, government direction, instead of just letting our folks do what they do best and what they can do if we just let them do it. Take the handcuffs off. I love that. Take the handcuffs off.
1: Love that. Going to use it. <laughs> we're not going to put it into heavy use. <laughs> one last one, Senator Hovitt. Um The Joe Manchin permitting crusade looks like it's come to nothing. After all this thinking, we got this stupid bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the Inflation Expansion Act because of all its spending. Now, what is up with this permitting stuff? It looks like for the moment, at least until the cavalry comes, it's dead.
2: Well, that's the thing is we can't do permitting and name only, right? We can't have permitting and name only. So, Shelley, more capitals put forward a bill. If Democrats seriously want to do something on permitting instead of just talk about it, then they need to look at that bill and, and then you might be able to move something forward. But you may be right. If if they're just going to talk about it, not really be able to do something that works, uh, you know, we've got to win this election in 22, stop the Biden agenda, get these things going that, that work. You saw the house plan uh, and, and then uh, win in 24 and get back to the kind of policies that, uh, you know, that we uh, will grow our economy and, and uh, get back to energy dominance and empower our people and get rid of this terrible inflation.
1: Uh just the last one, then, so you have an ear to the ground how's the election look in the in the Dakotas, in the mountain states? What do you see in Senator Hovind?
2: Well, I think you know we're working hard as our our Republican candidates across the board and and we know that you know, I mean, obviously we're, we're hopeful in the House that uh, w- Republicans will get a majority in in the Senate. You know, we got to keep working. it it's a it's a tough race and and we have to defend more seats than uh, uh, the Democrats. So we, we got to keep keep working here and hope we can get the majority.
1: All right, Senator John Hoven, North Dakota, can't thank you enough. Terrific rundown. All right, folks we're gonna take Thanks, a sir. quick break. And at the top of the hour, we're gonna bring in General Jack Keen. And we're going to talk about Armageddon. This is Biden's latest Armageddon. I don't really think so, but we'll hear what General Keene has to say. I'm Kudlow. Please, plenty more to do. We'll be right back.
0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome
1: back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you as always. By the way, you can uh, live stream us on the Internet. LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, and throughout the solar system. And we welcome back to the show my great friend and mentor, General Jack Keene, retired four star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. God bless. I was in the room when he received that. Award. General Keene, welcome back, sir. We appreciate it very, very much.
3: Yeah, delighted to be here with you and your audience. Uh, Look forward to it.
1: Thank you, sir. So I'd like to talk about uh, Joe Biden's um, throwing out the word Armageddon, meaning nuclear Armageddon. He said it at a Democratic fundraiser, I guess, on Thursday. It sent a lot of high anxiety around the country, nuclear war. He referred back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a somewhat different situation. Uh, And then on Friday, the White House told reporters there was no new information about any Putin intentions regarding nukes that might have prompted Mr. Biden's focus on a potential, I guess, tactical nuclear weapon. Anyway, I wanted to get your take on it, sir. What is this all about?
3: Yeah, well, we certainly don't know for sure whether this was Uh, President Biden, you know, sort of exaggerating uh, some of the challenges that he's facing as president to dramatize it at a fundraising audience for that effect, fundraising. Uh, Or is this something he seriously believes Mm -hmm. uh, that Armageddon, so to speak, and the potential of nuclear wars is around the corner? I I mean, if he if, if he truly believed it, then why is he not? Uh, speaking to the American audience uh, from the Oval Office about a serious existential threat that we're facing and telling the American people what he's doing about it, he should also go to the Congress of the United States and seek legislation condemning Russia's actions. And I, That would be so overwhelmingly bipartisan. I think no one would vote against it. And also allies and partners. I mean, why wouldn't we pull our allies together to deal with this and make certain— uh, they were putting together a deterrence. And I also think uh, those who, if, if something like this happened, India would no, no longer be neutral. They would likely sever the relationship with Russia and they should be talked to. And even China. I think, Larry, that China, if a nuclear weapon went off in Ukraine, China would see that, in my view, as a reckless act, uh, n- not needed whatsoever. And also, it puts in the minds of those. Uh, countries around China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, all who have technology capable of rapidly developing nuclear weapons to put on the table, do they now have to have something that preserves the regime themselves? So, yeah, his actions don't measure up to the words that he was using, in my view, and it was likely he was dramatizing it somewhat.
1: Mm. You know that last point is so interesting that these other countries would want to accelerate their own activities uh, towards nuclear weapons, which is the kind of proliferation spread that we don't want. What um, I don't, I just don't understand. Look, you're in, te- you're involved in the intelligence community, among other things. I mean, are you hearing that? I know Putin threw this out. I know Putin started this a few weeks ago. Are you hearing anything regarding what Putin might do? I mean, his military situation, uh, as you have taught us, is deteriorating rapidly. Everybody knows that's become front page news. You were you were there quite some many weeks ago. But I mean, what is there out there that might have prompted Biden to all of a sudden put this on the table?
3: Yeah, I I, I don't know. I mean, what? uh Certainly, you have to take uh, Putin's brandishment of nuclear weapons and veiled threats. His surrogates uh, you know, use much more direct uh, words to describe it. And you have to take that seriously. And I accept the, the administration at face value when they say that they believe the consequences of uh, Russia doing that would be catastrophic for Russia. And they have conveyed to Russia what that would be with some degree of specificity, uh, and 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 I I'll take that at face value. I think where Putin sits, um, if he was going to seriously think about using a nuclear weapon, I know he wants us to think he's thinking about using a nuclear weapon. That that much is a fact. Whether he really is making a serious uh, uh, consideration is another matter. We can't measure that. I don't think we have any information on it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what for the catastrophic consequences that have been delivered to Putin, the question I ask myself is, there's two things to have deterrence, Larry. One is the capability, and obviously we have capability here. We would not respond in kind with a nuclear weapon a counterattack uh, I don't see that at all. And secondly, we would probably not put any troops into Ukraine. But I do believe uh, that a nuclear weapon in Ukraine with a radiation spread would bring the United States and NATO into an air and missile attack on Russian forces inside of Ukraine, which would be quite devastating. And it would end the war, in a sense. The Russian military would be destroyed. Uh, Putin certainly understands that. But does he believe Biden would do it? Mm. I mean, that, so you have to have the capability, which we have. Mm. Putin knows that. And two, your adversary has to believe that you will execute. And, and that's the concern I have when it comes to Putin and Biden, because the undercurrent of the administration, even to this day, is don't provoke Putin. Mm. That it that was there before the war. Don't send the Trump lethal weapons that have been programmed in March of 21 when 70,000 showed up on the border and the president said, well, the reason I'm delaying it is because I don't want to provoke Putin. And then we wouldn't give uh, Putin—we wouldn't give the Ukrainians advanced weapons. Don't provoke Putin. Mm. We're still holding back. I mean, I was in the Ukrainian embassy yesterday talking to their military leaders and the ambassador, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how we can help them. Uh, with the struggle they're facing and the struggle that they face every day uh, with the United States government, which has been very supportive of them, but also holds back. They need uh, something called the Army Tactical Missile System. It's a long-range, 200-mile missile which can reach the the bases that are inflicting damage on Ukraine uh, from Crimea. And the Russians know full well the limitations of that the HIMARS weapons, which have been very good for Ukrainians. They've been devastating. But the Russians have pulled everything back beyond their range. And and the Ukrainians, I think, legitimately give us the longer-range missile. So, I mean, this has been going on for weeks. They want advanced fighters, F-16s. The chief of staff of the Air Force is all in. Uh, but uh, the policymakers are are debating whether they should do this or not. And it all it's the undercurrent, once again, of don't provoke Putin. And and I think you really got to give the Ukrainians as much means as possible to defeat this Russian army and regain their territory. It makes the most sense. It's the best deterrence uh, in pushing Russia back on its heels and taking away Putin's ambitions to retake the former Soviet republics that are now part of NATO. And, and and you know, talking to Polish leaders, they that's what they saw. It, the Polish leader, the director of the National Security Bureau, uh, equivalent to Jake Solomon, said, generally, he said, we are fighting the war that we knew we were going to fight against Russia in the future. Mm. And that is why I'm taking tanks and other vehicles out of my operational units and giving them to the Ukrainians so they can defeat the Russian army now. Mm. And we don't have to fight it later. And that should be what most people in Europe see, establish this deterrence and, and certainly defeat the Russian army now.
1: To your point,
3: uh, the,
1: the first point you made there, if, if President Biden's going to talk about fears of Armageddon and, and, and Putin using uh, nukes, shouldn't he have said what you just said, that we will crush you, in effect, we will crush you if you try this? But he didn't say that.
3: He didn't say that, uh, what what they have said, to quote them, and he's used, uh, you know, the Secretary of State and uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security uh, Advisor, on various talk shows to carry the message that we have told uh, the Kremlin leadership there would be catastrophic consequences if they used a tactical weapon, nuclear weapon. And we have specified to them what those consequences would be. Uh, I'm assuming, I can only assume, that they've told them what we would do to the Russian military inside of Ukraine, which would guarantee Putin loses the war. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm, I'm assuming that, taking them at face value. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see how you can distort something like that to the American people uh, when, when the when the threat here is serious and you have to take it seriously. I do think though, Larry, that the probability of Putin's doing this, despite his brandishment, despite the bluster surrounding this, I mean, what he really wants here is to force uh, the United States and the international community to slow down their support for the Ukrainians Mm. and also force the Ukrainians to the negotiating table by, by brandishing the fear of, of nuclear weapons. I, we at ISW think the probability is low Hmm. and,
4: uh,
3: because of the negative results to Putin, Hmm. uh, you know, he he loses the war as a result of it. You would want to use a tactical nuclear weapon to end the war on your, to your favor. But I, for a fact, I mean, just talking to the, uh, Ukrainian ambassador yesterday, who's clear eyed and very direct and, uh, a wonderful representative of our our country and our president, said the general, if he used a nuclear weapon, uh, we would continue to fight. The the Ukrainian people will continue to fight. The Mm. soldiers will continue to fight. Uh, We we would never give up. Mm. So their resolve would increase uh, as a result of it.
1: I just, uh, look, this is your field, not mine, but I I just, you know, hearing this from... President Biden, and and the lack of a strong response, I mean, just as you have described it, uh, it just struck me as a sort of, I don't know, exclamation of weakness is what it sounded to me. It's like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, Armageddon is coming. And, um, you know, we're in a much stronger position. This is the United States military, for heaven's sakes. And add on NATO— I mean, it just struck me as an expression of weakness, General Keene. And as you know, I don't like that kind of weakness. I mean, I worked for Ronald Reagan. I worked for Trump. I've been in the game a while. I don't like weakness. This is America.
3: Yeah, I know. And I and, and it's unfortunate. I, I, I don't think he thought he was going to be recorded. Uh, oh, I, I do believe he was dramatizing this thing a little bit hmm. for the sake of the fundraising audience. Um Sometimes I think he forgets, you know, the that every word he says uh, goes around the world very quickly, and he says a lot of inappropriate things, as we all as we all know, having watched this now uh, for two years. But I mean, to be frank, Larry, I mean you're, you're you're right. I I think from the very perception of the Biden administration when they came into power that Putin saw this as an echo of Obama, somebody. That he mastered, mm. I think, for eight years, and and Obama just refuses to co- refuses to confront him, mm. and back down time and time again. And I thought, I believe he he thought that uh, mm. President Biden would be quite similar. And he put seventy thousand troops on the border of Ukraine in March of twenty one, and Biden had nearly been in office sixty days, and Biden's reaction to that was to stop the the delivery of of weapons that had been ordered by the Trump administration to Ukraine to, to Ukraine right. march of that year right and then then president Biden made a public statement because he was queried about why are you delaying the shipment of weapons to Ukraine he said because we do not want to provoke Putin mm. well that was music to Putin's ears and he you know he put his money down mm. I think, on Biden being similar to Obama. And, and there he hears it in mm. Biden's own words. Mm. Mm. And mm. he shows up after the Afghanistan fiasco with 170,000 troops mm. in the fall and conducts an invasion. And, and I think these are all related. So that's the concern. Yes, it is a weak statement mm. for sure. General Kim- and particularly that he didn't follow it up. I know Uh, with something much stronger.
1: Yeah. On Friday. I know. General Keene, let me just take a quick break and you'll come back for a few more minutes, sir. I want to ask you about the military situation. And there's also a lot of loose talk uh, in diplomatic circles about something called an off ramp. Anyway, uh, if you would be kind enough to stay, sir, we're talking to the great General Jack Keene. Uh, on all things related to uh, U.S.-Soviet relations and, of course, the war in Ukraine. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Be right back.
0: Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and uh, blessedly Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. General Keene, just in our, I guess we got four minutes left because we went a bit long, but it was terribly important what you told us. A uh, lot of talk about off-ramps. Uh, Putin's off-ramp. Is Biden looking for an off-ramp? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it reads to me like the Ukrainians are doing very, very well. But what's uh, what are you thinking about this business of off ramps?
3: Yeah, well, I, I I think certainly one of the objectives of the Biden administration, I mean, they they have ceased a while ago. Stop talking about total victory for Ukraine, driving all the Russians out of their territory. I think that they're, they're trying to support the Ukrainians with most of what they want not everything uh, and so that the ukrainians can be successful retake a lot of their territory and then have some real leverage going into negotiations russia would negotiate with ukraine today uh, and the reason for that is because they would want to stop the counter-offensive that's taking retaking russian territory mm. but the ukrainians rightfully so are not doing that so i, I think that's Where the administration is, I mean, they don't talk about this publicly, but I I think you have to read between the lines and also watch actions to come to that conclusion. Uh, In terms of off-ramps, I don't think we should worry about Putin and his off-ramp. I mean, why we would want to think about designing some kind of off-ramp for him. What we have in Putin, I believe, is an evil man, and we've known that for 20-plus years— but he's not an irrational actor. He's capable of making strategic mistakes. Blundering into an invasion of Ukraine, not having a capable military to accomplish such a such a significant challenge, is, is a huge mistake on his part, for sure. But one thing we know about Putin: self-preservation, mm. and and he'll figure out a way uh, to make certain that that somehow, some way. He's able to have his off-ramp, so to speak, and make certain that he and his regime are going to survive this, because that is what he is about. That's what President Xi is about. That's what the supreme leader in Iran is about. They're all from the same stripes when it comes to that self-preservation, not just their own life, but the regime itself. He'll, I don't think we should worry about it What should or try to set him up for something. He's going to figure that out himself. What we need to do is just help the Ukrainians press the fight.
1: Right. And that's been your take all along. Uh, events have proven you to be right. Um, what do we need to do now? I mean, no, let me rephrase that. The Ukrainians have made a lot of progress in the east, in the northeast, even some progress in the south. Uh, just got a minute left. Uh, what happens next in your judgment, General Keen?
3: Yeah, what they're getting ready to do is conduct a third offensive into the Saporizhia Oblast, uh, which is between the east and the southern uh, offensives that are taking place right now. And that would take them to eventually retaking Mariupol, Mm. uh, which they lost several months ago. They don't have the logistics throughput for that right now, but they're building it in place. And that's what they have on the horizon, to continue the counteroffensive. Russia... They want to stop the bleeding, Larry. They're going to try to double the forces on the ground to do that, Mm. to hold back the Ukrainians.
1: All right. General Jack Keane, can't thank you enough, sir. Terrific stuff. Folks, stick around, please. We're going to bring in Chris Edwards of Cato. Which states have the best tax burdens? Which states are cutting taxes? New York needs some help on this, too. Anyway, stick around. State taxes coming up.
0: And then Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is going to whoop Hokel. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome
1: back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in my great pal, Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And he's also the editor of downsizinggovernment.org. Boy, there's a triumph of hope over experience. (laughs) How are you, Chris? So, I'm very
6: good. Thanks for having me, Larry. Right,
1: so, uh, look, I'll just be direct. You're coming out with your new rankings. Um, who's the best fiscal states? Who, wait, let's start with this one. This is much easier since I live in one of them. Actually, I live in two of them. Who are the worst <laughs> fiscal states in this
6: country? So every two years we score all the we score all the states on their the governors on taxes and spending. I can't tell you who's gonna who who's going to be the winners and losers overall, but I can tell you who's done the best been the best for tax cutting uh, and the worst for tax hikes so the you know the best tax cutting there's been over 20 uh, mainly Republican states that have slashed income taxes in just the last two years into the biggest uh, wave of tax cutting we've seen in over four decades it's been fantastic and all these tax cuts Um, You know, they're mainly supply side. They've chopped the top individual corporate tax rates. So some of the best tax cuts, um, Kim Reynolds of Iowa, Governor of Iowa, Mm. Brad Little of Idaho, Mm. uh, uh, Brian Kemp of Georgia, Tate Reeves of Mississippi, uh, Chris Sununu, New Hampshire, Pete Ricketts, Nebraska. These folks have all done tremendous tax reforms and they've pushed year in, year out to get those income tax rates down. So it's been a very supply side um, tax reform wave.
1: I love Kim Reynolds of Iowa. She's a friend of mine. <clears throat> I've had her on the TV show. You're reporting in this thing. She's cut the corporate tax now from 12 to 5.5, which is a big, a big cut. And converting the individual tax, the income tax, to a 3.9% flat tax. Uh, prior to that, it was 9%. Those are major.
6: Absolutely. The individual income tax in Iowa, when she came into office was a nine bracket complicated system with a top rate of nine percent, she's chopped it to a three point nine percent flat tax. There's actually about half a dozen states now. And just the last two years that are that have converted to a flat tax: Arizona, Idaho, Iowa, Mississippi, and Georgia. So there's this is this is part of the Republican wave, and I I just think it's so impressive that these these Republican governors, you know, they've listened to Larry Kudlow, they've listened to the Cato Institute, they've they've yeah. listened to other to Art Laffer and others, and they're doing the right thing. They're making really pro-growth tax reforms.
1: You know, it's amazing the contrast, <clears throat> Chris Edwards. That Between what the Bidens are doing, which is 24-7 trying to raise income taxes on individuals, on wealthy, successful, and on businesses. I mean, they got that damn 15% minimum tax on corporations on a book value basis, which is really a killer, particularly for depreciation. So you have the Bidens on the one hand uh, with their socialist tax hikes, and you have the states, particularly the red states, as you noted, cutting taxes – which is part of the cavalry coming, it's part of the Republican wave. You know who else I really like? Um, Well, you mentioned Georgia, which is important, and also Arizona. Uh, What Ducey has done in Arizona, I think, has been absolutely terrific.
6: That's right. I think, you know, Ducey has been a free market reformer across the board, and both him and Reynolds, for example, you know, they've done a lot of free market reforms other than the tax reforms. They've they've reformed occupational licensing. They've they've done uh, great school choice reforms. So a lot of these, you know, and th- these are all supply side reforms. When you think about school choice, it's a supply side reform. It's, you know, making sure we have the best human capital investment. So uh, I, it's really great to see that Republican governors, you know, they're listening to the supply side economists yeah. and they're doing the right thing.
1: You know, uh, you also note in uh, your recent report, Arkansas has done some good work. That's uh, what's his name? I know him quite well. Arthur Hutchinson. That's right. Aza. So they've cut. Uh, let's see from 6.9 to 4.9 on the income tax and the corporate tax from six and a half to 5.3. You know, Sarah Sanders going to win the governor's race and she will continue the tax cutting.
6: That's right. He's a Hutchinson's been great. He, uh, uh, since he's been in office, he's two terms now, you know, every year he's pushed and chipped away and chipped away. It's harder at the state level because they have to balance their budget to do a, a big giant tax cut at once. Like, uh, under Trump, so what they do, uh, that you know, the good reformers, they just ship away year after year, and that's what, for example, Kim Kim Reynolds has done yeah. too. And this year, because of the big uh, surpluses in state budgets, it was the opportunity for Republicans to really go ahead and do these major reforms. Yeah.
1: And as I said, <clears throat> uh, Sarah Sanders will continue this. I think she wants to get. I think she wants to zero out the income tax.
6: Over a period, there's a there's a movement for that also. You hear Republican governors in places like West Virginia and and Mississippi saying right. ultimately their goal is to eliminate the uh, the uh, individual income tax. And That's as right. you know, there's nine states now that don't have individual income tax. What's
1: uh, Chris? What's his name in uh, Mississippi? He's done a great job.
6: Uh, Tate Reeves.
1: Yeah, Tate Reeves. He's done a very very good job. All right. He yeah, he's
6: now- slashed. They had a multi rate system, five percent. he's going to a four percent flat tax.
1: And and most of the time, I think all the time, these tax cuts are accompanied with spending cuts of some kind or spending growth slowdowns because the states, as you noted, this, most states have these constitutional uh, prohibitions on running deficits. So you cut taxes, it's, it's got to be a static. It's too bad because I think there's dynamic scoring. But it does also mean they're you know shrinking their welfare state in most cases.
6: Absolutely. When there is a starve of the beast effect at the state level, so you know when you cut taxes, um, you know permanent permanent tax cuts. You know, the, the legislature has to restrain spending over the long run. And our the best governors in our upcoming report both did these tax reforms and they've restrained spending. And
1: who did you say is the best governor in your upcoming well, report? Well,
6: I'm, I'm not going to tell you. Who the <laughs> <best is>. I've, <laughs> I've told you who some of the best tax cuts are, but we also, you know, you got to look at the spending. Yes. So. All
1: right. We'll have you on the TV show to talk about that. Now, who is the worst? Who are the worst taxers in the states?
6: Uh, the, the, the two governors who have been honestly the worst for year year in year out have been the governors of Washington State and Oregon, Kate Brown and Jay Inslee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's incredible how they've uh, just pushed every year to hike taxes. The beauty is, though, in those two states, you know, Washington doesn't have an income tax and Oregon doesn't have a sales tax. So the, those governors, even though they press to raise taxes every year, the fact that they're missing a big tax base has actually restrained spending. So Washington state, uh, you know, it's a middle it's a middle sort of tax state, despite uh, the, the negative you know, efforts of Jay Inslee over a decade now. And it shows you the advantage of getting rid of the income tax when you get rid of a major tax base. It's going to, you know, it limits government despite, you know, even if uh, even if uh, the government gets, you know, full with with left wing progressives.
1: So so you live in Washington and shop in Oregon.
6: That's exactly (laughs) that's exactly right.
1: Uh, How about the great state of New York? Uh, as, new, York's new York
6: is always one of the doing. worst. Uh, we don't score uh, this year because the governor's uh, new in office. But I look at a lot of metrics on New York, and as you may know, New York has the uh, is is probably in the in the worst shape in the long run in terms of their competitiveness. Every year, year in year out, they have this massive outflow of people, mainly to Florida, but also to Texas and North Carolina and other states looking at new york and comparing to florida is astounding they both have about the same population now 20 million but new york has spends 88 percent more on government than florida and it has 38 uh, percent more bureaucrats than florida and yet they often get worse um public services florida has better schools than new york despite the fact that new york spends far more so New York, uh, it's really, you know, the poster child for a poorly run, bloated welfare state. And uh, it's really time for a revolt in, in New York. Uh, if it's, it's citizens need to wake up and realize they're being ripped off by their state government, they're getting worse government and it's costing more than places like Florida.
1: Yeah, well, the revolt is coming. The revolt is called Lee Zeldin, congressman. He's going to be he's our next guest on the show. He's a dear friend of mine. And he's going to win. He's going to – even though this is a heavy blue state, he's going to beat uh, this Catherine Hochul, who was, if anything, to the left of uh, Andrew Cuomo, if such a thing is possible. Actually, she is to the left, as Andrew Cuomo is – I know he made some terrible mistakes, but he actually cut the corporate tax at one point. How about Connecticut? There's a hot governor's race in Connecticut. Just off the top of your head, Chris – uh, what what can you he's tell us about world. Connecticut? I would say
6: the the governors of New York and New Jersey have been worse. Yeah, uh, the Connecticut, you know, governor he's he you know he's left of center. He did cut, for example, taxes on retirement income this year. So he's not um,
4: he, he he's Lamont. not one of the
6: good governors, but Ned, he, he's Ned also Lamont. not the very worst. I mean, some of the other worst governors who just relentlessly push for tax hikes are Prisker in in in, uh, in Illinois, for example. Um, and, and Murphy in New Jersey, it's just year in, year out, they're pushing for higher taxes.
1: I know. You know, I know Phil Murphy in New Jersey. He's a really lovely man, by the way. He's a lovely man. He just turned out to be this far left governor. What about California? Uh, Paul should go the Wall Street editorial board. You know, the Journal editorial board just wrote a thing that kind of sneakily California just tacked up their income tax from 13 percent something to 14 percent something.
6: That's right. How high can you go, for God's sakes? Uh, California used to be a net in-migration state. It's, it's uh, switched now to an out-migration state, particularly on high-earning people. You see this pattern in places like New York and California that have high income taxes. They have general net outflows of residents, but if you look at high earners and the IRS data breaks it down, they're losing. They're particularly losing high earners in California. California can't afford that because the top 1% pay 50% of all their income taxes and so when they're losing those high income people, you know Elon Musk of course moved to Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're le- they're losing the entrepreneurship. They're losing the venture capital. They're losing the philanthropy. Mm-hmm. I think states that that hike taxes on high earners, they're really crazy. They shoot their, their themselves in the foot because they you lose a lot when you lose these highly productive people like Elon Musk is a All good right. example.
1: Chris Edwards, Cato Institute. He won't tell you won't leak the new ratings. <laughs> But I have a feeling in terms of the best fiscal state, it's not going to be New York. Thank you, Chris. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, somebody who is going to change all this in New York, Lee Zeldin, Congressman Zeldin, running for governor. He's tied now with Hochul in the polls. The tide is coming. The cavalry is coming. I'm Larry Kudlow. Right after this break,
0: we'll have Lee Zeldin. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're trying to find Lee Zeldin on the phone. Um, I'm sure he'll get here in a moment or two. One of the reasons I wanted Lee on was the highly respected Trafalgar polling, which really is one of the, I don't know, top two or three most accurate uh, polls in midterm elections and presidential elections. Anyway, their latest... uh, Kathy Hochul, forty-four; Lee Zeldin, forty-three. In fact, I'll be—I'll give you the, this actuals: forty-four point five for Hochul, and forty-two point six for Zeldin. So, and by the way, almost ten percent still undecided. Uh, the point is, this is Robert Cahaley, the head of uh, Trafalgar. The point is, uh, Congressman Zeldin has closed the gap enormously, enormously. Uh, And all of a sudden, with a month to go, he's just a couple points behind. So the tide is turning. You can see that with great clarity. And um, I think that's, uh, by the by, very much the case nationwide. Not that New York is like the nation because New York is so totally dark blue and so liberal and so heavily Democratic in terms of registration. But the reality is uh republican lee zeldin is making great gains he would be the first republican governor uh since my pal george pataki many many years ago it's about 25 years ago george was first elected if i'm not mistaken if i was right 1994 and he served three good terms and cut taxes so anyway zeldin is closing the gap and um i'll make another point too we're we're still trying to reach him uh, on the phone another point is um this story that continues to plague Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, these pay-to-play issues. I mean, they're all scandals. Uh, People are giving her tons and tons of money, donors, uh, and they're getting things in return, okay? Pay-to-play. There's no question about it. And it continues. I mean, she's raking in millions of dollars, uh, record rates, but she's getting Hollywood types and real estate types, and healthcare uh, leaders, and, of course, registered lobbyists. She's putting out uh, no-compete contracts in a number of areas. And guess what? The contracts go uh, to her donors. Uh, This morning, for example, in the New York Post, there's a story. Her biggest donors include Chaim Shera, the head of retail at Vornado Realty who gave Hochul $47,700, Forty-seven seven, a little over a week, after her administration's economic development arm rubber-stamped a plan overhauling the Penn Station uh, reconstruction championed by uh, his company. All right. Another one is um, is a movie guy. I'm trying to find his name. Steven Spielberg, a Hollywood guy. He's in, Look, I'm... He's a good director. He's a good producer. But he needed tax credits for his um, movies making here in New York City. I'm all for making movies in New York City. But in return for these special – now, these are special designated directed tax credits. uh, He gave a ton of money, he and his wife. So you can't do that. I mean, for example, cut tax rates across the board. Just cut them. We just heard uh, Chris Edwards – of Cato talk about how states like Florida and Texas, but also all across the country, uh, states like Iowa, states like Arizona, states like Georgia, Mississippi, they cut tax rates across the board to attract investment, not specific pay to play designated tax credits. This is a scam that's going on. And Hochul is practicing practicing this as badly as anybody I've ever seen. And that says a lot uh, in New York. The other point I'll make is um, uh, Lee Zeldin is putting together a large-scale tax-cutting plan. Now, I don't want to detract because I really still think crime is the biggest issue. And every day you read, I mean, horrific crime stories, and you have Alvin Bragg and, you know, um, Mayor Adams – Uh, Often, I hate to say this because he's a nice guy and I talk to him periodically, but Mayor Adams uh, uh, talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. Uh, Hochul herself had done nothing uh, with this uh, no-bail, no-cash-bail business. And, of course, you have the Alvin Braggs that need to be replaced, which a governor could do. So crime is probably still going to be the biggest issue. But the economy, uh, as Chris Edwards said a moment ago, New York – is among the worst. New York, New Jersey, um, California, terrible, repelling investment. People are leaving these states. And Lee Zeldin, uh, who is a guy who wants to downsize government, get rid of waste, fraud, and abuse, uh, get rid of all this unnecessary bureaucrats, uh, and cut taxes. New York needs tax cutting. And I'll go back 25 years because I remember when George Pataki ran, and he was a long shot member. He was a state senator uh, running against Mario Cuomo. Uh, nobody gave Pataki much chance. And he had a terrific tax cutting plan to help New York, to attract investment, to help the shopkeepers and the small businesses. Uh, Steve Forbes helped him out. I helped him out. A lot of people helped him out. David Malpass helped him out. We all kind of got together. And Pataki, uh, particularly in his first term, but he continued it, uh, lowered taxes in New York to make this an attractive place to do business. So, like, you've got crime, okay? What is high crime besides the violence and the tragic deaths involved in high crimes? and of course the recidivism, high crime is like a tax hike. If you are in crime-ridden areas, you, first of all, don't want to live there, but you don't want to open a business. Or if you had to close your business because of COVID, you don't want to reopen your business because it's not safe. It's not safe to send your kids to schools. And you keep reading about these high crime rates in New York City, but it's not only in New York City. It's some of the upstates, too. All right. We did. We tracked down Lee Zeldin. So, Lee Zeldin, I've been talking it up for you, um, as I love to do. But I want to just say one reason I wanted you to come on is you basically closed the gap, the so-called polling gap, uh, and donors look at the polling gap. Uh, Trafalgar, which is one of the best polls in the country, most likely voters, you're practically even uh, with Kathy Hochul. And um, I just want to ask you, couple, why do you think this is the case? What has closed the gap for you, Mr. Lee
4: Zeldin? Well, I believe that the Kathy Hochul from the pay-to-play scandals to the rising crime, rising costs, uh, have a whole lot of New Yorkers realizing that we need a balance of power. Kathy Hochul has to go. Uh, I'm hearing it from Democrats and independents. They're seeing the rising crime on the streets, on the subways. It's pro-criminal laws like Castle's Bail, which this week resulted in a mother of three being killed by someone who was released the day before Mm. on Castle's Bail. Uh, You've seen the corrections officers getting assaulted because of the HALT Act. That woman in Howard Beach who was attacked at a subway station by the person who had once killed his own grandmother was out on the street because of the Less is More Act. uh, That His parole officer wasn't able to keep him detained. Uh, So from the policies on the economic front to the safety to the attack on freedom and the the corrupt way that this governor is trying to finance her campaign, has a whole lot of New Yorkers hitting their breaking point to sign she has to go.
1: You know, I was talking earlier about the pay-to-play stuff that was in the papers today. Well, it's been in the papers constantly, uh, Hollywood, real estate, health care, and so forth. I mean, this stuff, I don't know if it's illegal, but it's certainly unethical. And um, you're not pulling this kind of thing.
4: No, no way. I mean, first off, I wouldn't be accepting any donations from a political appointees or spouses. Um, I believe that this governor... Uh, having these donor meetings, uh, the way she's been conducting them uh, as we saw play out in in one of the most egregious ways with this over $600 million no-bid contract for COVID tests mm. to a top campaign supporter, and we're paying twice the price. Mm. Uh, New York has competitive bidding laws. Four days after these people held a fundraiser for her, she signed an executive order to suspend New York's competitive competitive bidding law, and that's why she was able to do a no-bid contract. There's a bunch of other examples similar to it. This is the one that's gotten the most amount of attention, but you know, look at the Bill Stadium deal, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, of, of ways that a lot of New York taxpayers feel like they're getting taken to the cleaners. Uh, uh, you've seen with the rising costs uh, you on many different fronts, New Yorkers are not happy with the way Hochul's governing.
1: Yeah, I got it. Um, next time we'll talk about taxes. I had Chris Edwards, from Cato. New York is losing people, but ha- spending more and and hiring more bureaucrats and uh, Republican tax-cutting wave. Anyway, Lee Zeldin pulling even with Kathy Hochul. I'm Larry Kudlow. On the other side of this break, we're going to do some stock market and economy work. It's not a fabulous picture, but please stay right here. It's all great fun.
0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. All across the country, around the world throughout the solar system. And um, during the week, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Kudlow, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. And if for some crazy reason you can't get us at 4, just text your favorite 9-year-old, who will show you how to DVR the show. It's not all that hard. All right, so quick roundup. Um, for the week, the Dow was up 571 points, but it was a very weird week because the first two days of the week were booming. You had a tremendous relief rally, up 1,500-some-odd points. But yesterday, down 630, and the day before was also off. Interest rates had fallen at the beginning of the week, but they popped back up again yesterday. The 10-year note is now about 390. Heading for 4% or higher in my humble judgment. We had a jobs report that uh, was basically in line with expectations. A little softer on the payrolls, 263,000. Households, 204,000. The unemployment rate did fall to 3.5%. That's where it was back in July. So that's a low unemployment rate. So it was a decent report. But in the report, I mean, I made this point at the top of the show. Uh, Wages continue to rise, uh, 5.8% year-on-year for average hourly earnings for production workers. All right, that's the great middle class, the working folks. That's a good number, probably too high for the Fed's taste, although I am in favor of more jobs and higher wages. That is not what causes inflation. Inflation is caused by printing too much money chasing too few goods and federal spending and so forth. But um, the problem for the workforce, and this is the soft underbelly of the entire economy, is that the inflation rate is rising at 8% in the CPI. So real wages fell for the 18th consecutive month. And um, we will talk about all that. We got Ken Carey Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors, Chief Market Strategy at Slate Stone Wealth, and Jack Berugian, Chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Gentlemen, welcome. Lots to talk about. I do, I want to, if I can find it here, we got this jobs report. Okay, blah, 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 as I walk through it. But um, two things. Number one, the GDP tracker... From the Atlanta Fed, this would be for the third quarter, is all the way up to 2.9%. So, you know, they're saying you can get a 3% quarter, more or less. Uh, I don't know whether that's in the market. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. But they ought to because that's a big number. And that's going to drive the Fed crazy because the Fed's trying to destroy the economy, as stupid as that may be. But that's their basic goal, right? They want to. Put millions of people out of work in order to slay inflation. Dumb, dumb, dumb. But the um, the inflation tracker, it's called Inflation Nowcast, from the uh, Cleveland Fed, very interesting stuff, is showing that core inflation, I, I think we get the inflation port Wednesday or Thursday, correct me if that's wrong, you guys are closer to it than I am, but this uh, inflation tracker is suggesting that core inflation is going to increase. Again, it's going to accelerate, uh, and it's going to be running around 6%. That's the core inflation rate, not the top-line CPI. So I think that, too, is going to promote a fear and loathing of higher uh, Federal Reserve Fed funds rate, which is going to go to, I don't know, I think it's, they're going to do 75 in November, and another 75 in December. So anyway, that's my intro. Enough from me. Uh, Kenny Polcari, what's your take on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the stock
7: market? (laughs) (laughs) I think, and you hit all the points, right? Those are all the concerns. I, too, was not necessarily surprised by uh, Friday's NFP report, you know, coming in line. I was surprised that unemployment dropped, but, you know, more people dropped out of the out of the uh, out of the sector, I think fifty-seven thousand people or something dropped out, right? Um, but we're in this position where the Fed is backed into a corner. They've made it quite clear. We heard it from you know another eight or nine Fed officials again this week that inflation is their target, and their only tool is to raise the, is to raise rates to try to combat it, right? Because the administration's not going to help by backing off on on all the spending and all the stimulus. They're going to keep barreling ahead. So the Fed has been put in this position to have to try to. Uh, bring it down and bring it down by raising rates, right? You and I both agree. They waited way too long. They should have started way back in 2021 because then they could have been maybe a little bit gentler. But now they got their back against the wall. They should have done one full percent back in the spring, the way you and I also thought they didn't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now they're jammed into doing this and creating a little bit more, I think. Panic in the market, which is you know, which is what we saw last week. We saw that huge rally on Monday and Tuesday, which didn't make a lot of sense based on the fact that everyone was running with the story the Fed was going to pivot when they weren't going to pivot at all. And then at the end of the week, it becomes clear they're not going to pivot, um, and they take it all back. Right?
1: Yes, indeed. I want to. Here's uh, before I get to Jack Bruggen, I found my notes. The inflation now casting this is very interesting from the Cleveland Fed. They also produced the median. The median CPI, uh, which is all the way up to 6.7%, that's the, the median, the 50% mark. So in other words, it's not just energy. It's not just groceries. This is the whole uh, middle of the index. But, um, Jack, you're going to get a number. I think it's Thursday the CPI comes out. So the forecast from the Cleveland Fed is that the core – this is the core CPI – will be six percent Six percent Now, the overall CPI, according to the Cleveland Fed, will be 8.2. So you're not going to any relief on the top line. And the core is going to pick up again. And this time it'll be 6.6%. And by the way, on the PCE, which the Fed looks at, Personal Consumption Expenditures Deflator, they're looking at a 6.2, and the core is 5.1. The Fed's target is two. So they're going to be running three to four times the Fed's target. And if these numbers come in close, uh, Jack Bruggen, I think you've got a problem. And I want to reiterate the, the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker for Q3, uh, which won't come out for a couple of weeks. It comes out the last week of October. But they're looking at 29 Uh, It's largely because of improving trade and inventories. So I will posit to you, Mr. Berushin, that these numbers will spook the market because the Fed will have to be uh, every bit as tough as Ken Polkari has suggested.
6: Oh,
8: without question, Larry. And, and in fact, you know what, I've got a feeling they might have to be a little bit more aggressive than all of us actually think. Uh, you know, the this Fed has always had a, a habit of overshooting, whether it's to the upside or to the downside. And the other thing that we've got to keep in mind is that it takes Six, eight, nine months for a lot of these Fed actions to work their way into the economy. Yep. Um, we are not seeing the numbers yet that, that the Fed wants to see because, quite frankly, they haven't worked their way in. But when you look at certain commodity markets, and I'll give you two right now that I pay attention to very closely. Look at lumber and look at copper. Lumber has crashed. Mm -hmm. Lumber has gone from 1,900 to under 500. Mm. It's now at 435, 450, last I checked, I believe, yesterday. The copper market is down 30% off of its highs. Mm. These are markets that, if you were to look at them as standalone markets, are in bear market territory. Now, Mm. I bring that up because... Those are going to be the numbers that we end up seeing in another three, four, or five months. See, And the problem is, and and both you and Kenny have been spot on with this, the Fed has been so late and so behind the eight ball with this that they are now trying to play catch up, and it's almost desperation mode. If they were to pivot right now, they would lose credibility on the global stage. We all know that. So when the Fed comes out and says what they are saying, all of us have to take that As gospel right now, we have to also pay attention to the fact that it's creating king dollar again, Larry. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's going to be a headwind for corporate earnings. So we're going to see revisions and we've got a P.E. on the market that's probably
1: way too high right now. You know, I I didn't mean to interrupt, by the way, but you're absolutely right. Um, uh, The dollar is uh, earnings are going to be continuously marked lower. That's coming. We haven't seen much of that. A little bit, but not much. But much more is coming. You're right about the lags between policy decisions and the actual economic impact. You're hundred percent right on that. Um, the other thing that's a little bit complicating is oil prices are creeping back up. They're not gonna I don't know that they'll get back to 125, but uh West Texas is ninety two and a half bucks. Brent crude is almost back to a hundred, ninety eight and a quarter. Uh, I guess because of what OPEC has done and because what our dumb dumbos are doing, uh, they're going to cut. They want to now. They want to cut off exports and they want to stop drilling in the uh, federal offshore. So nothing gets any stupider than that. But I mean, the thing is, um, I don't understand. <laughs> Ken Bocari, look all three of us have been around a long time. Uh, none of us are actually on Wall Street right now. We're, we're really kind of independents, which is a good thing. I don't know where this garbage comes from that Wall Street firms keep talking about the Fed's going to pivot you know, to a less restrictive policy. Where does that crap come from? You know, somebody ought to take – no, they ought to go before the Federal Trade Commission or some damn – I mean it's just
7: wrong. There's no hint of that. It's mind boggling to me that 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 could be coming out of, uh, you know, some of the big banks on Wall Street. Look, I think maybe on Monday or I think maybe it got some traction when the Bank of England pivoted after they had that chaos and the guilt and currency markets created by the new prime minister and the chancellor of the Exchequer. Right. Then the, the Reserve Bank of Australia suddenly went 25 basis points versus the 50 that. Everyone expected. So suddenly there was this conversation. Oh wow! Look at these other global central banks pulling back. That must mean the Fed's going to pivot, which makes no sense to me because I don't remember the Fed or the United States being pulled around by the nose by some of these other central banks around the world. In fact, I think it's actually the other way, right? Where the Fed really controls that conversation, and the other central banks react to what the Fed does versus vice versa. But I think it got way out of control on Monday and Tuesday because that was the narrative, yeah. and it was mind boggling to me. They had a shake. Look, you saw it on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Jay Powell sent every single Fed member up to try to counter that argument, and they did. And then you saw the market. You know, the reality is that uh, the market is overpriced, like Josh just said, right? And you just said it. We're going to
2: start this. Kenny,
8: Kenny, Kenny, the other thing is, and and this is important to keep in mind, is that the average age of the portfolio manager on Wall Street now is around 31, 32 years old. (laughs) They have never seen a market (laughs) where the Fed is raising rates. They have no idea what they are looking at, and they think that every downturn is a buying opportunity because that's all they've ever seen or witnessed. Uh,
7: by the way, This is where gray hair comes in. It's really, really valuable, right? Having gray hair.
1: By the way, it, it, it is a good point. <laughs> What's the average age of the participants in this segment?
9: If it's under 60, I'd be surprised. <laughs> how about that? No,
7: it's not under 60. Well, I don't think it's, under, it's under
1: 60. I, I don't know but you. I'm, I myself am bringing it up well over 60. But it is true. <laughs> it's a good point, though. Uh, they've lived through this long, long period, except for the, uh, you know, the 2008 situation. But the reality is you do, you buy the dips. Now, look, I'm stocks for the long run. I've always been that way. But if you're going to play the trading game, you have to understand the bear markets come and go, and this thing could be, could be very uh, difficult. And I just want to, I got to take a break, but I just want to say, Liz Truss, the prime minister, the new prime minister of Britain is absolutely right. And uh, all these left-wing media outlets, I'm not going to name names, it's not my network, but it's others, uh, piling on, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, she's cutting tax rates to the tune of $2 billion, which pales in comparison to what they've all been spending. She's a Thatcherite and a Reaganite and a Trumpster, and she has the right idea, and all the rhino-wet Tories in her party have the wrong idea. And if if she'd follow through and she still has corporate tax cuts and payroll tax cuts, uh, the pound will not become the ounce. It will become the pound again. And uh, we'll all live happily ever after. She is right to go on the supply side. We need supply side policies in this country so the Fed doesn't have to ruin the economy to deal with inflation. Anyway, i got to take a quick break and then we'll come back with more specifics. I want to ask about the potential for financial dead bodies – that might pop up. And I want to emphasize also profits of the mother's milk of stocks and earnings markdowns are ahead. we got Kenny Polcari, Case Capital and Slate Stone Wealth, Jack Berugian, Global Smart Commodity Group. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back.
0: Now back to the Larry Cudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks. Kenny Polcari, Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors, Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth and Jack Berugian chairman of the global smart commodity group a lot of good gray-haired experience here and we need some of that um kenny let me ask you this there's been some talk i mean this is more realistic than the fed is going to turn back easy but um with the dollar strong as jack mentioned and you know you got the fed raising its target rate tightening money markets uh cutting back on the money supply etc cetera, etc cetera. um dead bodies financial dead bodies you know i thinking about going back Fannie and Freddie and Bear Stearns and Lehman brothers and things of that sort. Um, Some people are saying the only thing that'll stop the fed uh, and they're going to be, and you guys are right. I mean, 75 or they may have to do a percentage point in November, but what would stop the fed is some kind of financial dead bodies. My question is, do you see anything out there? Do you hear anything about that?
7: Well, I think the one that we certainly, that, 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 that uh, uh, had the airwaves really hot last week was the Credit Suisse one, yeah, right? But yeah. Credit Suisse has been one of those firms that every year Credit Suisse always seems to come up as having a problem and they always seem to skate through. I don't necessarily see that problem right now in any of the big US banks. I think they're very well capitalized, but. My fear is if you had, and I think that's the, I think that is really the fear of a lot of people, is if you see a firm like Credit Suisse go down, then it drags all the other, like the contagion, everyone else that's connected, the same way Lehman did mm. um, when they let it go, right? Everyone that got affected, and that's clearly the, the, uh, the issue. I don't see it though, right? As much as I think Credit Suisse has its own problems, I think. Um, it will survive, whether or not you know whether or not the Swiss government comes in and, and and supports them or whatever. But I don't think that's going to drag anyone down. So at the moment, I don't see it. I'm not worried Cre- about that.
1: Credit Swiss, I love the Credit Swiss story. Uh, Credit Swiss has been underwater. I don't. I'm not going to say yeah. bankrupt, but they've been underwater for years. They just won't <laughs> for fess as long up. As I
7: know. Right. <laughs>
1: this is one of these long playing records. It's kind of like Citibank. Citibank's been rescued by the federal government. I don't know five or six times in the last three decades. But we somehow muddle along. But I will ask it, Jack Perugian. Do you hear any dead body talk yourself?
8: Well, you, you know, you're 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 in the right part of the world. I, you know, as I was a former president of the Division of Commerce Bank, and you're right. Uh, you know, these banks have been in trouble forever for the last thirty years. But the reality is is that now they've got a huge problem, especially with energy. You know, these European banks have got a lot of exposure, and not only that, but a lot of. Who is holding their paper uh, mm. are, these, are these large sovereign wealth funds, which, by the way, are mm. controlled by the, by the Saudis, by the Chinese, and some by the Russians. Mm. So, so it's a very, very delicate situation. One of the things that I've been saying is that there's a very good chance we'll see the markets go down with the thermostat in Europe. So let's pay very right. close attention to that. And, and the other thing is, remember, when rates move as fast as they have, it, they create ancillary problems that w- are not present. But we will find them out and we will feel them. Pay attention to those credit spreads. They're probably the first things that will give us a, an indication that something's happening. Already the 10-year notes in some of these European countries are showing us some stress. So I, I think we, both you and Kenny are spot on. It's, it's one of those things that's going to pop out of nowhere. And it's going to hit the market. And then when we start to see credit start to seize a little bit, you'll see that pivot take place.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And you're right. The spreads um I do track the uh Merrill Lynch high yield spread. It I mean it's widened 150 basis points or so. It's not a disaster. But um Kenny, the other last one is some pension funds. Um, Could be state pension funds, could be private pension funds that might have bet wrong on interest rates and stocks. Is there a risk there?
7: I think there is risk there, right? And you'll start to see that, I think, as it gets – as the pressure builds, right, over the next two or three uh, 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 FOMC meetings, right, as they start to raise rates. I'm not necessarily sure that it's going to be the disaster that we saw back during the crisis. But I do think there's going to be some pressure. I mean, that was part of the story that happened over in in London, right? That all of a sudden, all those pensioners were going to, those pension funds were going to come under pressure. Um, And I think potentially, could that happen here? Yes, but I'm not necessarily so sure that that we don't have it under control, right? I do think that while a lot of portfolio managers are only in their mid-30s and they haven't really lived through anything, I do think, though, there's enough Guidance that um, uh, you know, if they bet wrong on interest rates now, after all the after all the news, after all the mm. you know the, the the conversation and the narrative, um, then I guess they deserve what they get. But if they've been paying attention, they should be okay. I
1: will tell you what, though, on this point. Um, so the S and P five hundred, the broad index, is down twenty three point six percent year to date. So it's bear market territory. Uh, there are fifty eight percent. According to Gallup, of Americans who are in the stock market, it's at least 125 million people. They're the ones that are going to have trouble as we go forward and real wages keep slipping down. Anyway, gentlemen, out of time, Kenny Polcarry Jack Berusin, you're both terrific. I'll tell you, folks, be careful. That's all we can say. Short run, next 6 to 12 months, be very careful. I'm Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore on the other side of the break. Please stick around.
0: From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. Let's do some money in politics. We have a full house today. Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and gracing our presence, Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the author of GovZilla. So, kids, welcome. Liz Peak, I begin with you. So let's review the bidding uh, OPEC Plus kicked us, uh, kicked Biden in the teeth and uh, took two million barrels a day off the market to jack up prices. Prices are rising again, both for oil <clears throat> and gas. And here's where I'm going, Liz. I just wanted to get your take on this. So the Biden response here with the shortage of oil and so forth, uh, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's block all offshore <laughs> drilling. That's point number one. And number two, let's ban refinery exports. Now, that's a way to really get at the Saudis, isn't it?
5: It's really almost unimaginable, isn't it? Uh, I I mean, all this is... So basically tragic for the American people, and by the way, really bad news for Joe Biden and the White House. I thought you were going to say their response was sue OPEC. can you even <laughs> oh, imagine yeah. no, that that's... that is the other response I'm Larry getting let's to talk that. about a court <laughs> hearing where presumably OPEC comes in and says, "Well wait a minute, Mr. President." It was just you know a year ago that America was a net energy exporter for the first time in sixty years, and the EIA by the way, was projecting that to go on pretty much indefinitely. What happened to that p- forecast? Why are you now a net energy importer? I mean, uh, honestly, I my I can't get my head around the stupidity of their response on energy policy from beginning to end. And the fact that they haven't pivoted, even as this obviously is a, a development that could torch Democrats in the midterm elections, it's beyond me. I I mean, their, their fixation on climate change and on completely improbable and impossible climate goals is going to ruin their party, and they don't care.
9: I, by the way, Liz I, Liz, I think I have an explanation for Liz on this. And, and you know, I, by the way, I agree with everything you just said. But I, I think I, I honestly believe that it's, it's, um, it's almost a religious um, kind of penance that America has to pay. This, this is truly the way some of these climate change fanatics think that you know we're responsible for the last fifty years of industrialization. We've put all of this quote pollution in the air, so we have to suffer. You said. By the way, I'm not making this. This is truly the way a lot of these people think. You know, so you know China shouldn't suffer, even though they put five times more pollution in the air than we do, um, and it's a kind of anti-industrialization viewpoint and what really surprised me, Larry, is how it's swept through the entire demo. it's a, it's a lunatic idea right and yet <laughs> we're, there's no opposition to it i mean and let me make make one other point if you actually believe that climate change is going to you know destroy the planet i'm not there, but many people do, even if you believe that what they're doing is actually counterproductive because the United States has the cleanest oil coal. And yeah. natural gas. So if you if you actually we're still consuming oil and gas, it's just a question of whether we get it from Texas, uh, from Oklahoma, or North Dakota and Alaska, or whether we get it from countries like Iran, Venezuela, and Russia. And Larry, do you think that those countries have good environmental standards?
1: I yeah. think the key word here from Liz, and I used it in my own <laughs> on the show, is stupid. Yeah. Okay, that's really yeah. a key word. It, it's it's not a policy debate. It's not an empirical issue. It's not a quarrel over the facts, you know, like we heard Phil Graham the other night. It's just stupidity, okay? Mm -hmm. Rank stupidity. Now, the other word that comes to mind, and you kind of got to this, is Stone Age. (laughs) Let's go back to the Stone Age because, really, they'd rather destroy capitalism, I think. Before the planet goes down, they want to make sure that capitalism goes down. Now, yeah. I want to ask another clever response, OK? Blocking <laughs> offshore drilling, banning refinery exports, of course, all the things that they've already done, no permitting for domestic and so forth and so on, no pipelining. How about going to our very dear friend, the democracy-loving government leaders of Venezuela?
8: Yeah. Uh, that yeah. strikes
1: me as a brilliant response to OPEC. And <laughs> Only exceeded – I'll be done in a moment – only exceeded by the brilliance of going back to Iran, another democracy-loving, dear American ally. Okay, that's what their policy is right now. Iran, Venezuela – oh, and I neglected to mention they're going to destroy Spro – which might give us another Arab oil embargo someplace down the road, all right? So go ahead, Liz. Take it, take it from
9: there.
5: <laughs> no, I, I I mean, I think for all the reasons that all of us can imagine, it, this is just the worst geopolitical assessment ever in the history of an American presidency. I really believe that. For example, again, in going after Saudi Arabia and OPEC, what is the alternative? The alternative is Iran. Do Are we really going to basically throw down uh, our Our chips with Iran as our sort of uh ally in the middle east in in <laughs> as opposed to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, which basically has been a buttress to a really malign influence which is Iran mm. it's inconceivable. Steve is right by the way in talking about Venezuela, which honestly made my head explode. I think the only well, I was, I, let me back up. The, Venezuela has to be the dirtiest oil production in the entire universe. Yep. So, I mean, yes, it's a it's a completely idiotic thing. I think the good news, Larry, and I, I actually believe this, particularly after the Venezuela announcement was sort of lofted, uh, I think the American people are really on to this, mm-hmm. and I, I do right. believe that the polling on this – Actually, for over a year, people have blamed Biden for inflation and for higher gasoline prices. That has got to be even more so now as they see his stubbornness in addressing this and his humiliation by OPEC. Uh, I really do think people kind of get it uh, that this is not working and it's totally self inflicted. The cavalry
1: is coming, Liz. Yeah, the cavalry is coming. They just got some reinforcements. By some of the stupidest policy statements I've ever seen. I mean, here, Steve Moore. So they're in the White House. So the day after uh, OPEC uh, takes a couple million barrels off the off the market, the National Economic Council and the National Security Council issue a statement saying the solution is to um, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. Yeah. All right now, that's very clever. So let me get this right. <laughs> let me get it's uh, okay to produce oil and gas and fossils anywhere in the world, okay, Iran, Venezuela, we've mentioned, China, we've mentioned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not okay to produce here. Now, I thought we were in favor of onshoring and bringing supply chain. Yeah, no, good point. N- made in America. Not, right? not made in America, except fossil fuels, which just happens right. to finance roughly 75% of our power and electricity. <sighs> All right. So this is Really, the NSC and the NEC both put out this joint statement on that point. So let me add that. We are no production here at home, uh, no production offshore, and no exports of refineries. So that's terrific. This is our response to the Saudi slap in the face, which, by the way, as you know, Steve Moore, helps Russia Finance the Ukraine war, right? At a hundred dollars Brent, they have more money to spend than they do at eighty dollars of Brent crude. So there we have it. This is a brilliant strategy.
9: Yeah, I mean, I would just add one or two quick things to what uh, you and Liz have been saying. One is it's un- unpatriotic. It's unpatriotic. Yeah. It's anti-American that we're not producing our oil yeah. and we're getting it from our enemies. Um, the second point I want to make is something you guys just alluded to. You know, the left talks all the time about human rights, and we all care about human rights. If you care about human rights, why would you want to give money to Venezuela? Why would you want to give money to Iran? If you care about women's rights, these are the countries that have the worst human rights violations on the planet. I mean, it is so hypocritical in every way.
2: Uh,
9: And one other quick point. Again, I want to say this again, Larry, and I'm asking you, where are the sensible Democrats speaking out about this? I mean, none of them are breaking ranks with a crazy... Uh, you know, energy policy that will do great damage in every way.
1: You know where they are? They're they're in losing Senate
9: races. <laughs> You're right. Boy, are they distancing them. That's the other big story, Larry, about how these Senate candidates all over the country are sprinting away from Biden. Biden? Joe Biden, I don't even know who he is. Liz, yeah. Liz, didn't you and I, we first
1: met years ago, weren't you an energy analyst or an energy yeah. banker or something?
5: Yeah, I covered the oil field services industry, but that really meant uh, covering the energy industry yeah. for for a long time, 20 so, years. Yeah. Uh,
1: so you'll recall, I mean, the Arab oil embargo and then subsequent meetings of OPEC were like so important because they wrecked our economy, certainly in yeah. the 70s. That's why Spro was started in the first place. Um, and we used to have high drama. You remember every meeting, days before and days after. How is OPEC going to screw us this time? So one point I want to make here, and I, I made it at the very top of the show with Senator John Hoven of North Dakota, who's a very smart man, by the way, been in the game a while. We have given our energy power back to Saudi and OPEC. We yeah. had the dominance. We had the power. Now we've just given it back to them, which kind of puts us back into the 70s, Liz Peak. That's yeah. what I'm thinking here.
5: Well, in fact, that is why we developed a strategic petroleum reserve, which we're now spending for political reasons, I think you could argue. But you're totally right. What what people don't get is it's a very thin margin, right, between being dependent on OPEC or, or not. All it is is like a one or two million barrel a day right. – margin, typically. And Biden has offset the shortfall from Russia and the problems by releasing a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which, by the way, was oil bought at around $28 a barrel. So it's going to be very interesting to see the price for replacing all that oil. But eventually, he's going to have to stop doing that. I'm sure you guys both noted that that million barrel a day Uh, withdrawal is going to continue through the end of November, surprisingly, right through the election, Mm -hmm. so that we don't have a big shortfall all of a sudden that makes this two million barrel cut from Saudi Arabia and OPEC even that more consequential. But the point is completely well put. I think Steve and his colleagues did a a study, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, goes back to what the estimates were at the time that uh, we should be producing 13, 14, maybe 15 million barrels of oil a day right now instead of 12. That 2 or 3 million barrel difference is more than enough Mm -hmm. to basically put OPEC out of commission in terms of the regulator of global prices, which is what they are now.
1: By the way, Steve, that's what the Energy Information Agency said back in early 2020. So we're at 11 – we're at – I don't know – we're around 12 million barrels now, 11 8, something like that. Uh, we should have been at 14 million barrels a day in 2022 on the way to 15 in 2024. That was the energy department's thing. You know, that's an independent agency.
9: Yeah. So that was the study that Casey, your buddy Casey yeah, Mulligan yeah, did. Yeah. Uh, and, and here's the thing, though that that was based on the prices at that time, which were about $70 a barrel. Mm-hmm. So we're at $100, of, or closing in on $100 a barrel. We would be producing even more energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, you, if mm-hmm. you go up to, because every additional dollar, the price goes up, obviously is more profit for for the incentive for the companies to produce. So we'd be at least 3 million barrels higher mm-hmm. per day, uh, which, and, and Liz is right, It w- that would c- completely counteract what opec is trying to do and by the way i don't even remember during the virtually the entire trump presidency even re, we didn't care about those opec meetings with no. the nigerian no that's right no power because the number one producer of oil and gas at that time was the united states it's good to have a cartel when the biggest producer isn't part of it
1: i remember uh that's such an important point um sitting in nsc meetings i remember we're talking about, you know, disengaging from yeah. Iran, toughening the sanctions on Iran, and all these CIA types are telling us, oh, no, oh, no, what if they – you know, we're going to lose <laughs> right. oil. And I would sit there and go, what are you talking about? We're we out we're outproducing everybody. We run the <laughs> right. oil market. We are completely dominant. Don't even – I said whatever whatever the spooks think about, don't – forget the oil because oil is not a yeah. factor anymore. Um, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, We're going to take a quick break. we got Steve Moore and Liz Peak. Kids, when we come back, I want to ask about all these racial equity commissars and agency after agency, including the Treasury Department. And then I want to know about Hunter Biden. Is Hunter Biden going to get a whitewash job or not? I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peak and Steve Moore. Be right back.
0: From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. We're here with uh, Liz Peake. Fox News Contributor, Syndicated Columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and um, Govzilla, his book. Um, you know, I had the odd view that the Treasury Department, which is a very important federal agency, was you know, their main mission was uh protect the nation's finances, taxes, budgets, the currency international uh, international uh, investment and so forth. But I was wrong because we're reading this past week uh, Janet Yellen gleefully announcing the formation of a 25-member committee called the Treasury Advisory Committee on Racial Equity, which will identify, monitor, and review aspects of the domestic economy, quote, that have directly and indirectly resulted in unfavorable conditions for communities of color. And the vice chair of this committee is one Felicia Wong, who was the president and CEO of the left-wing Roosevelt Institute, uh, who's going to be there. And she has argued that um, the principal issue with the American economy is racial injustice. That's the number one issue issue. And by the way, has a long history of defunding the police. Okay, she was the head of the Democracy Alliance and then Roosevelt. Now, um, I want to generalize, Liz, I'll begin with you on this, but we're seeing this ESG racial justice. I call them commissars, Soviet style commissars pop up in all the agencies. This is not a new thing. We saw this with the controller of the currency. Uh, More recently, the ESG lady who went to college in China, the control of the currency, the original idea was the one that went to college in Russia. Um, These are not, these are not, uh, they're not authorized, they're not appropriated, there's no congressional laws about this, but they're popping up all over the government. And uh, I also want to say, finally, that if you have a strong pro-growth economy, meaning, limited government, limited taxes, limited regulations, and a steady dollar, all of which come under the purview of the Treasury Department. That is the best thing we could do for racial justice, lower poverty, less inequality, higher wages. That's the best thing we can do, not have these uh, Soviet-style commissar committees. All right, that's my take, Liz Peek. It's all well, yours.
5: I, I I think that's totally right, and unfortunately, all these – Uh, the imposition of racial equity as a guiding principle for every agency, whether it's the military Mm -hmm. or NASA or the Treasury or the Federal Reserve, anybody. I mean, unfortunately, Federal Reserve isn't an agency. I get that. Um, Every part of the government has been given this mandate. And To my mind, it it really becomes like bobblehead dolls kind of bobbing along in in sympathy and and so forth. If you read the bills that have been passed, Larry, Mm -hmm. every single one has uh, a standard line about how this is going to particularly be – money will be awarded to blah, blah, blah. And the problem is I think people are are becoming insensitized to it. I mean no one – is even paying attention to it anymore. It where's the proof that any of this does us any good? Mm-hmm. Or more importantly, does the communities that they care about any good? There are things that the government could do to improve racial disparities which, for example, starts with education. But they won't even touch education because heaven knows uh, that's under the complete thrall of the the, uh, teachers' unions, big Democrat donors, obviously, uh, and so they can't go there. But other than that, what is it supposed to mean? Are you just going to give money racially uh, uh, based on racial data? We've seen how that works in, for example, the housing bubble where Fannie Mae – Uh, was instructed to lend to Mm -hmm. black owners and Mm -hmm. buyers, regardless of their financial wherewithal. Well, you know what? It doesn't work. I mean, unfortunately, uh, that helped contribute to the worst uh, housing disaster in our country's history and set back black ownership of homes a a substantial amount. I mean, I think, you know, this doesn't, I don't think the American people believe in equity. I certainly don't believe in equity, which is basically assuring everyone of the same outcome. Mm -hmm. What we want to strive for is opportunity, and that Mm -hmm. goes back, in my mind, to education.
1: Education choice is crucial. Uh, Steve Moore, the other part of this is it detracts uh, from a uh, pro-market, pro-supply-side, pro-growth economic policy. In other words, these committees that they're setting up, these racial equity committees – and Liz is right, by the way. All the prior legislation had whole sections in there, including, including by the way, uh, 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 tax credits for renewables and so forth about racial equity. Kamala Harris talked about racial equity in helping, uh, solve, yeah. in helping rebuild the hurricane damage in Florida, which fortunately was contradicted by the FEMA agency. But, Steve, it detracts. This is an administration that would rather look through the lens of so-called racial equity and equity in general uh, rather than the lens of economic growth. And that's where I see the biggest problem is. And the Treasury, where Janet Yellen has made her own statements this past week defending it, that's a problem, a big problem. Steve, did we lose you?
5: All right, I think we must have. Maybe we
1: lost him, but I'll put yeah. it. I'll put it back to you, Liz. In other words, the emphasis is on, as you put it, the guiding principle of racial equity. Look, there's nothing wrong. Uh, all right, Steve Martin, uh, are you back? Did you hear the question sorry, I yeah, asked? Sorry,
9: sorry about that. I was muted, oh. um, but I heard everything that you said. And I, I think it's ironic that what's the name of this woman? Something Wong or something like that. Uh,
1: yes, her, her name is Felicia Wong. Wow.
9: Okay, so that's an Asian surname. <laughs> and what's yes. really interesting about this whole debate about racial inequity is the group that is has much 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 higher incomes than whites in America is what yeah. what ethnic group? Asians. 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 So yes. all of the Asians when they keep talking about stuff because this is inevitably going to lead back to affirmative action, mm-hmm. racial quotas and things like that and the, who are the people who are hurt the most by those policies? Not whites, Larry. It's, it's Asians who are. we got to make sure that Asians are voting. 80 percent of Asians should be voting Republican because the victims of all this are high achieving Asians. And so that's point number one. Point number two, I have to read through a lot of these bills that you know, Biden and the Congress come up with. Um, and sometimes there's 600 pages. And I'm not exaggerating, Larry. Every other paragraph of yeah. these bills has is about one of three things. Climate change, racism, or income inequality. Yes, that's right. They don't, right. Talk, about, they that's don't right. talk about growth. No they growth. don't talk about prosperity. It's all about income inequality. By
1: that's the way, it, it's not a cliche. Under the Reagan and Trump tax cuts, what? poverty fell. Poverty yep. fell during yep. those growth periods. Anyway, Liz Peak, many thanks. Steve Moore, many thanks. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks, and we will see you next weekend.